Father, uh, thank you so much for the blessings that you have poured out on each of us, Father. Father, uh, it was not that long ago that we would have uh, prayed earnestly for rain. And Father, now we have the abundance of riches of rain. And so, Father, I might pray that the rain could stop for a time and we might have the benefit of the that rain soaking in for a while. But thank you, Father, that you have blessed us in that way this year. Thank you, Father, as well for the time in this building every week, for the church that makes it available, for the tithes and offerings that you will bring to this church so that they might have the means to provide us this building. And just all the ways you've prepared for it, Father, and brought many not only into this study of students, but around the church to support us in this way. Thank you for the men who set up the room and provide for us in other ways. And Father, as we enter into the study tonight, I lift up Jim Kerr in, in uh, the hope that, Father, if it would be your will, you could do a miracle of healing for him as a godly man devoted to serving you, that he would have opportunity to do that in greater days. And Father, if, if not, we pray he would be comforted in this time and his wife surely would be comforted. Father, thank you as well for the word before us, for it is that and that alone which enables us to know you and guides us in your will and according to your desires for righteousness' sake. and Let us be devoted to it as we are to you personally. And Father, we pray that uh, the words we speak tonight would be according to your spirit, would be edifying, would be glorifying. And in all things, Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, let's go ahead and open up to chapter 22 of Luke. As I think I said at the beginning of tonight, our study here is is quickly winding to a close. I, I was thinking about this as I studied. Not all of you, of course, have been with me as I've taught through this study from its from its beginnings, a few of you have. Uh, it was in the early summer of 2005, and there was a six-month pause in the middle of that, which explains to some extent why it's taken us this long. But here we are near the close, and we are reaching the climax of this book, of the Gospel itself, both in terms of the power and of the significance of the text. We're reaching that point of Christ's death on the cross, of course. And in the remaining three chapters, just to kind of give you a preview of what we're doing in the remaining three chapters over the next six or seven weeks, I guess, in those remaining three chapters, Luke's Gospel is going to cover this, generally speaking, these things. Jesus is going to celebrate His final meal with the disciples on earth. And in doing so, of course, He's going to establish an indelible symbol for the church in that meal. He's going to be betrayed by one of the twelve that have spent three years with them. He's going to experience one of the most unjust trials in all of human history. He's going to see virtually every friend he has abandon him in his time of need. He's going to suffer some of the most extreme and and inhumane torture imaginable on the way to probably the most famous and significant death in all of human history. And finally, he's going to reappear in the very same body that he went to the grave in, having been resurrected. And he's going to uh, present himself to the world in proof of his claims to be the Messiah. And all of this detail, and even more for that matter, is going to be explained in a mere 180 verses from now until the end of the Gospel of Luke. Which means that there's a lot of power packed into just a very few words as Luke methodically takes us through the end of, of his story. And as we dive into these last 180 verses, obviously not not all of them tonight, though I'm sure some of you were hoping, there are a number of areas of 
history, of culture, of Jewish practice and law and teaching that are going to be essential. We are going to need to understand them if we have any hope to really grasp all the details of Luke's account, all the meaning and all the subtext that's in there. So what that means for you and I is starting tonight and in the nights to come, there are going to be moments along the way where I'm going to have to take time to explore some of that background, some of that history, some of the context of the time, some of the practices of the day. Because if we didn't take that time and kind of rush through the text, I think we're going to miss a lot. So you'll have to give me license at times to pause and to go into that detail. So tonight, where do we begin? Well, we find Jesus still on the Mount of Olives, as he was at the end of chapter 21, probably as evening approaches. This is Wednesday of the week of his crucifixion. And at the end of chapter 21, Luke shows Jesus reminding us that it is his pattern to leave the city at night, to teach in the day of the temple, but to come out at night and sleep outside the city somewhere, spending the night probably in Bethany most of the nights of that week. But tonight, for an interesting reason, Jesus doesn't go all the way to Bethany. He stops short. He actually stays close to the city on this Mount of Olives. And he's doing so because he's planning to return to the city that same night, where before he had stayed outside the city, tonight he's going to return. So having finished his discourse on the end times, we're going to begin chapter 22 tonight, looking at why Jesus stays on the Mount of Olives, beginning in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Well, like I said, we're going to take moments along the way to stop and explain some of the cultural background. I Realize you didn't expect it to come quite that quickly, but I did warn you. As we begin chapter 22, I want you to notice how this opening verse in Luke's Gospel describes the times of this week, the, the moment that Jesus finds himself in here. He says uh, in his first verse of chapter 22, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And so before we go any further in this seminal chapter in Luke's Gospel, we want to be sure we have a complete understanding of what this festival was, what the events of the week were, why it's being called, what it's being called here, because these events, the events of the festival itself, are central to the story of what's going on in these last days of Christ. They explain why it is that God set up the week the way He set it up. There's no coincidence that they're combined. Many of us have been taught in the past, and I mentioned this at a few chapters earlier in our study Many of us have been taught in the past that Jesus died on a Friday and was resurrected on a Sunday. We memorialize that in some religious traditions even today by terms like Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And there are two fundamental problems with that point of view, two, two basic reasons why that view, as common as it is, is completely wrong. So we need to look at Scripture to understand why. That's one of the things I want to provide as background as we go into the rest of this chapter, as well as a discussion of these two feasts. The first reason why that view is fundamentally wrong is that there isn't enough time between Friday and Sunday to fit the teaching of Scripture with respect to the events of that week. Scripture tells us Jesus was in the ground three days after he died. Mark chapter 9, verse 31 says it this way, he was teaching his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Matthew gives us, though, an even clearer picture, an even better definition of the times. He says it this way in Matthew 12, verse 40. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in Matthew's account, the detail is even greater, even more specific. We need to count three days of time in death plus three nights in time of death between the time he is crucified and the time he rises. However you want to place it in the week, you've got to have that span between those two events in order to be sound with Scripture. For example, if I take the commonplace view of when he died and when he rose, I would have to do this. I would have to say, he died on a Friday, so I'll count that as the first day of his death, because the moment he died, he's in the grave. So his body is dead, he's in the grave. Whether we actually physically place his body in a room of any particular sort is irrelevant to the issue. The issue is, when did he go into the state of death? So Friday would count as your first day, then that night is your first night, Going forward from there, you have Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday, Sunday night. That would mean that the day of his resurrection would have to be Monday morning. So to die on a Friday, you'd have to have Monday morning be the day that he was discovered missing in the tomb. But Luke tells us that the tomb is found empty on the first day of the week. It is the first day of the week that Mary goes to look for the body of Jesus. And just as it is today, the first day of the week in Jesus' day was Sunday. Just as our first, if you look on a calendar, calendars start with Sunday and end on Saturday because Sunday's the first day of the week, not Monday, Sunday. And likewise, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish way of counting, Sunday was the first day of the week. The Sabbath came on which day? The seventh. The seventh being the last day, that was Saturday. Sunday is your first day of the week. So we have definitive witness from Scripture telling us that he rose on a Sunday. So it's a matter of simple math to back out from that day to know the day that he was actually killed. So if he rises on a Sunday, you count back three days and three nights, that leaves you with a Thursday death. On the cross Thursday dying, in the grave meaning dead, on Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night. And then he's risen on Sunday morning. The second reason we know Jesus died on a Thursday is because of these Jewish festivals and their meaning and the way that calendar itself played out in the week of, the, of, the, of these feasts. So we need to take a little moment to look at these two feasts. The week of Passover was actually a combination of two festivals. And this is where some of the confusion arises from Scripture concerning what was actually taking place in the week that Jesus died. In fact, I want you to look again at just a moment how Luke introduced that chapter. He says, It was the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, those were approaching. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The word here for approaching in the Greek, the word literally means near, as in drawing near, as in about to happen. So, a perfectly reasonable way to translate this is, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, is about to happen, or was about to happen. The moment that Luke is describing here, at the beginning of chapter 22, is the day immediately preceding the night when Passover begins. Remember, the Jewish day was counted as the night first and then the day to follow. Whereas we do it exactly the opposite, typically. We consider that the day starts with daytime and continues into the night. So you have to reverse that thinking for a moment if you're going to understand what's going on here. It is the day that he has been in the temple. He's left on a Wednesday afternoon. He's gone out to the Mount of Olives, done his teaching with the disciples. Night is approaching. Wednesday night is approaching. He is now going to walk back into the city, as we will see here in a little while. 
This is the day before the Passover begins, because the Passover day begins with night, so at sundown, Passover begins. So that is why, as we see at the beginning of this opening uh, verse, Luke's saying that this event was approaching. It was about to occur. We're a few hours from its beginning. The Torah established that these two festivals would be separate, but they would occur together. So that the Passover was not a week, it was a day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, on the other hand, was a seven-day festival which began the day after Passover. So when you put the two together out of Scripture, you end up with an eight-day period of festival, the first day being the Passover, the next seven being this festival of unleavened bread. The Pharisees believed that this day was also the first day of unleavened bread. So the way they chose to interpret the law was that the first day of unleavened bread and the Passover day were the same day. The symbolism of what's taking place between these two festivals has a direct bearing on what Jesus is doing at this meal that's about to take place with the disciples. John tells us in John 19 that Jesus' body needed to be buried before the Sabbath. The women are in a hurry to get Jesus off the cross and put him into the grave before the Sabbath. And therefore, many have concluded that that means, well, Jesus must have died on a Friday and they're rushing to get him in the grave before Saturday Sabbath. That's one of the arguments many are using to try to tell you that he died on a Friday. What they forget, though, is that the first day of any festival in Jewish, under Jewish law is also a Sabbath. So if this is, this is Passover, this would be the first day of unleavened bread, according to the way Scripture would provide it. Forget for a moment that the Pharisees had messed it up. This becomes the first day of unleavened bread. This is a Sabbath. But then, sure enough, Friday night nightfall happens right here. So you have Friday night, Saturday day. This is also a Sabbath, isn't it? This is the normal weekly Sabbath. Friday nightfall until Saturday nightfall is also a weekly Sabbath every week. So on the day, on the week Jesus was killed, the calendar worked out just so such that the day he died here was Passover. The next day was a Sabbath because of unleavened bread. The next day was the normal Sabbath in every week. So he had two Sabbaths in a row follow his death on the cross. So when the Scriptures say that the women wanted to get him in the grave quickly because the Sabbath was approaching, it's not talking about this Sabbath. It's talking about both of them, meaning before this two-day period was about to occur where they wouldn't have been able to do anything with the body. Rather than have the body lie outside a grave for two days, they were rushing to get him off the cross on this day and get him into the grave. He's in the grave here, he's in the grave here, and then he rises here. God prepared it so that the two days Christ was in the grave, he was truly at rest, observing a Sabbath for two days. So when you see Luke saying, back to verse 1, that these, this festival was approaching, why does he say it the way he says it? When we know that Scripture provides that these two festivals should be independent, they just be, they're back to back on the calendar, but nonetheless they're different events, why does he say that they are synonymous? Why does he describe them as if they are the same event? Well, it's because of this issue we just talked about a little earlier with the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees had confused these two festivals in, in their counting of the calendar. By the time of Jesus' day, the way it was actually celebrated in that culture was that this was counted as the first day of unleavened bread. And so the entire 
uh, seven-day period now was just lumped together as the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were seen as synonymous in the way they were celebrated. They were combined in a way that was different than the way Scripture itself actually provided for them to be observed. So it's not to say that they are, they are the same festival. It's simply to say that by the time Luke is describing it, he's simply describing it the way the culture had come to observe it. But you can go back, for example, to Hezekiah in the story of Hezekiah bringing the nation back to an observance of the Passover. And you'll see that he observes it correctly. He observes the Passover meal. Then he observes, observes a separate seven-day event for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in keeping with the way it was given in Exodus. Again, what is the significance of this? Well, in part, it helps explain the fact that Jesus could not have died on a Friday because of the date, because of the number of days required. And secondly, that Scripture's requirement that he die right before a Sabbath is still met by the events of that week, by the virtue of the fact that he died a day before a festival Sabbath, which is, again, a day before the weekly Sabbath. It reflected the fact that on that particular year, Passover fell on a Wednesday night. Now, with that scene having been set and some of the background there, realizing we still have a few more puzzle pieces to put together before the night's over, let's move to verse 2. <laughs> the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Luke announces that there is a conspiracy afoot here to murder Jesus. And this is not merely a continuation of the hatred and the fear that these men have been showing all along in the previous chapters of Luke. This is a different situation here. This is an entirely new moment. We have a moment here where the leadership of the nation of Israel jointly conspires to murder a man. This is not the same thing as a few men who are prominent in the society, feeling threatened and feeling a bit put out by Jesus and his teaching, walking around, talking and grumbling under their breath about him and, and uh, wishing him dead, hoping he would die, hoping he'd go away. No, this is different. This is a true legal conspiracy. These are men who have the power to actually carry out what they hope to carry out. These are men who are actually, they're so serious about what they want to do that they're conspiring across political lines. We have men who otherwise would have nothing to do with one another, who despise one another, who compete with one another for power within this culture, joining forces because of their common hatred of Christ and conspiring in very specific terms to put him to death. Matthew gives us more detail about the plotting that took place that night or, or during that day. In Matthew 26.3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So in Matthew's account, you get to see just how organized this effort was. You have the high priest himself. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say this is like the president or you know, the chief justice of the Supreme Court calling a bunch of equally uh, important leaders within the nation to his private home, which essentially was also his place of, of, of business officially, and convening a meeting to you know, enact some kind of policy, to enact a conspiracy here. This is not just 
a rogue element. This is a very organized effort. They even say things like, you know, we can't kill him while the festival's going on because we risk a riot. They're planning out the details of it. They probably even discussed how to kill him, maybe who would do it. You know, what are the ways we might get him alone? How are we going to find him? There's a real effort going on here. And they are well organized enough that they understand that they're going to have to do this carefully. They're going to have to carry it out in a skillful way. Now, if we're going to be accurate, and I mean that both historically as well as intellectually, intellectually honest, then we're going to have to be willing to acknowledge that a group of Jewish leaders were the principal instigators responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, there's been a lot of debate over the centuries about who was responsible for Jesus' death. And there's always, you know, one camp or another for any given answer. But the Romans, we know, were instruments of that death. But then again, so were the crowds. But the leadership of Israel in Jesus' day conspired against him. They conceived of the idea. They were the ones motivated to carry it out. And they were the ones who actually found the means to do it. Now, having said that, should that be an excuse for any Christian today to harbor hatred or prejudice against Jews? Because that's often how that statement is seen or perceived. Those who would say plainly that Scripture teaches that the leaders of the nation of Israel were the prime instigators in Jesus' death, in in human terms, anyone who would say that is seen potentially as anti-Semitic or at least is labeled as such. And it is true, as I just implied, that a Christian should never use that information, use that fact to turn it into some basis for prejudice or hatred. Because, number one, it was the Father in Heaven who first purposed to use those men for that end. And secondly, if we were to hold present-day Jews, quote, responsible for the death of Christ, then you, all, you, you need to do a few other things as well if you're going to be consistent in your thinking. Uh, you better hold all present-day Germans responsible for the deaths of Jews in World War II. And likewise, you better be able to hold all present-day Africans responsible for the death of Christian martyrs. And you ought to be able to hold all present-day Caucasians responsible for the death of African slaves and present-day Americans responsible for the death of frontier Indians and on and on and on. And if you do that long enough, eventually everybody's responsible for everybody's father's death. Which, in a sense, is true in that there is a common element to all of those behaviors. The hatred that is true to the heart of any man ruled by Satan, which is to say anyone who is not of God. And that leads us directly to verse 3. The real instigator of the conspiracy is Satan. As God gave license, as God gave opportunity, and put to use according to his sovereign will and purpose, it was Satan who became the instrument by which Christ was put to death. So yes, it occurred through the events of men, Men like the Jews, men like the Romans, for that matter. But it was a spiritual battle. One God said would happen back in chapter 3 of Genesis when he foretold that Satan would have a limited power to bruise the seed that God would bring to save mankind, but it would not be a sufficient power to kill him, to crush him forever. And in turn, that seed who had been bruised by Satan would retaliate by crushing the head of the serpent a total annihilation of Satan, which we know is yet to come in God's economy and God's plan. Both John and Luke, as we just read, record that Satan was behind Judas' act of betrayal. But I want you to know, this doesn't lessen Judas' culpability under the circumstances. He was available for Satan's use in this way because Judas was not a true believer in Christ. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And what's most interesting to me is he was there by God's design. 
John 6, verse 70 tells us this. Jesus answering His disciples said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. Now He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For He, one of the twelve, was going to betray Him. Jesus, in John's chapter 6, identified twelve men, we're told, early in His ministry to be His disciples. But when He did so, He conscientiously, He purposely chose... One man who he knew would never believe in him or follow him truly. A man who would be a conspirator against him. A man who would be a traitor. A man who was, of his father, the devil. And never a believer, never a faithful follower, never a, quote, Christian. Rather, he chose one in the man of Judas who God would reserve particularly for the purpose of betraying Christ. Why did he do that? Well, think about it. Would a true follower betray Christ? Scripture makes that an impossibility. And in fact, I believe it's very much the case that if Judas had been a true believer, as the other eleven obviously were, Jesus would have had no betrayer. Not out of that group. And God's plan was that there would need to be a betrayer if, in fact, his son was to go to the cross. And so he reserved one of the twelve for that purpose. We know that later, according to Acts, Paul himself became that twelfth disciple, that twelfth apostle. Some believe it was the man, uh, Matthias, who was chosen by Lot. But we see later in Scripture that Paul himself clarifies he was the apostle appointed by the power of Christ to fill that void. Judas, we're told here, sought compensation for his willingness to betray Jesus. And that, as a result, the leadership agreed to his price. I can't help but just seeing this as insult added to injury. You know, you have a man already willing to betray Christ and then he does it not for misplaced loyalty, not for some allegiance to the Pharisees, not for principle, but for money. Which just seems even lower to me than to do it for principle, though in both cases it was equally wrong. It's a mercenary act on the part of Judas, it appears. Matthew tells us Judas was paid 30 pieces of silver in this transaction that we hear about in Luke. This is significant for a couple of reasons. First, the only way that the leaders of the nation of Israel, these men could have come into that much money so quickly, so easily, would have been if they were to have robbed the uh, temple treasury, to have taken it from the petty cash fund, if you will, of the temple treasury. Because although some of them may have had that kind of wealth, they probably wouldn't have had it at their disposal so easily. This treasury where they would have found this money, by the way, is the same treasury fund that was routinely used every year by the priests to buy the sacrifice needed for the Passover. How fitting that Jesus, our Passover sacrifice, was purchased with the same temple funds reserved for that very purpose, for the sacrifice. Secondly, this number is significant because the price that's paid here, 30 shekels of silver, that fulfills Scripture. Because in Zechariah 11, verse 12, we're told that Israel would reject their shepherd for 30 pieces of silver and be judged over it. And here's the fulfillment. Now, maybe a better question for tonight is, why was it even necessary for the Jewish leaders to have a man on the inside like Judas? You ever wonder why it is they needed him? What value did Judas add to this process? I mean, really, how much did he do for that 30 shekels of silver? Was it really that hard to find a man that was followed by adoring crowds everywhere he went? By a man whose pattern was basically to come in every day and go out every day and do it in full sight of the crowds? What is it that he's really accomplishing for that money? Well, First, the leaders did in fact need help finding Jesus at night. 
Remember, they couldn't kill him when the crowds were around because the crowds were adoring and they were imposing and they posed a threat because if you were to take action against Christ, they might riot. We saw that mentioned already in the text. But at night, Jesus was generally surrounded only by his disciples, only by his apostles. I mean, people went home at night. They went back to their homes and they didn't follow him at night. But the leadership did not yet have anyone close enough to Jesus who could know his movements in that way at night and yet still be willing to help them find him. I mean, think about it. The crowds were not interested in turning him in. They were adoring. So they would separate at night. Jesus would walk out the city with just his men. Now, the leadership itself, they don't want to follow after Jesus. They don't want to be the ones who spy on him because it leaves them as potentially culpable for the act of him being captured. They don't want to be that closely associated with it. They don't want to have their name associated with his capture or death. They want to do this in secret. So they need the middleman, but then again, who's the middleman going to be? Who can they find who's willing to follow after him and report back? So they did need someone to help them locate him and turn him in. But there's a more important reason why Judas was necessary, why they had to pay him for this work. And it relates both to the practices of Jewish and Roman law in that day. Jewish leaders knew that they couldn't kill Jesus on their own. I mean, there's no way they could physically do it because they'd be risking their own lives with the crowd. So they therefore knew they had to use the Romans to do it. The Romans had to be the instrument for that death. But Roman society followed a very strict rule of law, very similar to our own in many respects. And the Jews knew that if they were going to have any success in getting the Romans to act, they're going to have to pass a couple of legal tests with the Roman authorities before the Roman authorities are going to get involved. First, before a Roman soldier would be put to use to arrest anyone, they had to have a formal indictment. I mean, no different than today. If you're trying to arrest someone for the charge of murder, you need to indict them. Or at the very least, before they go to trial, they need an indictment. In the day of Roman rule in this day, they actually had to have the indictment in hand before they would go and arrest somebody. Now, a Roman governor could issue the indictment, but before an indictment would be issued, a witness had to be presented to witness against the person to the charges that, they were, being, that were being made against them. So Judas was going to have to be that witness. So part of what he was doing to earn that fee was he was going to go testify before the Roman governor to some trumped-up charge of sedition against Christ, and that would be the impetus for the Roman governor to issue an indictment, which would lead to a, a Roman cohort, which is a term for a size of Roman troops, to go arrest this man, to arrest Jesus. We'll look at more at the arrest later. But just understand that before this arrest could take place, although it's not spelled out in Scripture, we know from the practice of Roman law that Judas would have had to have gone to the governor and testified against Christ in order to accomplish that purpose. So as I said, this is a very well-developed and a relatively complex conspiracy involving multiple people doing different things. So having agreed to the leader's plan, Judas now returns to Jesus, and what he's doing now is he's looking for that opportunity to betray Christ, and he understands the rules that he's been given. Wait for a time when the crowd's away, when Jesus is alone and vulnerable, and then you'll have to come back and you'll have to tell us where he is and testify to the Roman governor so that we can get an indictment and then he'll send the Roman troops to go find Christ. And as long and as complicated as that may sound to you and I, it's not that hard to do in a town where people live within walking distance of one another. They didn't drive and go out of town for the weekend. They're all right there on a Passover week. I can guarantee you the city was filled with Roman soldiers ready for the least bit of trouble out of the Jews. Everyone's on high alert. It's actually an easy time to get this kind of attention from the Roman authorities. The first 
whiff of, of a charge of sedition or of rebellion would have immediately gained the attention of the Roman governor and of his troops. So it's actually an easy time to get that kind of attention. Meanwhile, Luke 22, 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus said, sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man may, will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. They left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, here we see Luke describing us moving into the first day of unleavened bread, which, as I mentioned already, is actually the day of Passover. Because, as I said, they had combined the first days of both of those festivals into one day. So I don't want you to be too confused here. We're not looking at the day after Passover, which would technically be the first day of unleavened bread. We're back here on the night that began Passover, Wednesday night. And on that night, as we prepare to enter into that night, Jesus gives the disciples this command. I want you to know what happened a little bit on this day before we go into the night, on this day that preceded the Passover night. Earlier this same day that Jesus is speaking these words, the families who lived in Jerusalem were taking this lamb that they had brought into their home <clears throat> four days earlier and had been keeping and inspecting for the purpose of finding flaws and finding spots. It was now the day that they were to take it into the temple and they were to have it slaughtered by the priests in the temple so that it could be then taken home and eaten that night. This is the part of the preparation necessary so that you're ready for the meal that night. Now, that lamb that they're taking into their home is called the Pascal lamb, or it's the sacrificial lamb set apart by families to feed the family during the Passover meal. You may remember out of Scripture where the Bible talks about if you are a family of ten, then the lamb is to be used, and if you are smaller than a family of ten, you know, two families could combine and share a single lamb. They're talking about this lamb that's used for the meal that night. The family lambs were brought into the temple, into the court, and the families, typically this is what would happen, particularly in the time of Jesus, where by now you have literally millions of people in the city. So this is a big, involving, big process involving a lot of people. The people were separated into smaller groups of families, and the groups were brought in one at a time. So one group of families would come into the temple courtyard, the gate would close behind them. They would line up, and the priests, there would be priests in front of the families, one in front of each lamb as the family stood behind it. And the lamb would be slaughtered. The blood drained out into a bowl that each priest held underneath the lamb. The, the bowls would then be passed from hand to hand to the priests, as they, kind of like, a, like when you bail out a house that's flooding. It's that kind of an idea. The, they're all passed along in a line to the chief priest or to the head priest of the ceremony who's at the altar, who then sprinkles in one motion the blood from this bowl onto the altar and then dispenses with the remainder. Then the animals are completely stripped of their skin. They're, they're skinned. They're cut open. The entrails are taken out. A portion of the meat is then cut, up, cut out and taken to the altar and burned as a burnt offering. The remaining meat is taken by the family home and is taken into the home to be prepared that night. Once it entered into the home, none of the meat could leave the home and all that had to be consumed that night, anything left over to the next day had to be burned. This is all according to the way the Passover meal was instructed to take place under the law. So that's what had been going on in the nation of Israel throughout that earlier day. 
into the night now, we find Jesus telling his disciples that they are to go prepare. But think about it for a moment. They didn't go to the temple. There's no evidence of Scripture that they were there with a lamb. They didn't go to the temple with a lamb, these 12 men and Christ. So there's no way at this stage, with night an hour or so away, that they're going to get hold of a lamb and have it sacrificed in the right way for the sake of their own Passover meal that night. They don't have a lamb. They don't have any way that they can eat the lamb that night at Passover. They certainly didn't have a lot of time to prepare an entire Passover meal at this point to get the unleavened bread ready, to get the herbs and the wine ready that was required as part of the meal. They're, they're, they're kind of stuck. I mean, if they want to observe the Passover meal, how are they going to go about doing this? Well, just as uh, Abraham told Isaac as they walked up the mountain to sacrifice, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And that's what happens in this Passover meal. Jesus tells us, Jesus tells two of his apostles to go prepare the Passover meal. And of course, they ask the logical question, where? Where do we go to prepare this meal you're expecting? And then Jesus gives this very curious answer. He tells a couple of the disciples to look for a man who's carrying a pitcher of water in the city and then follow him to his home. And when he gets there, he's going to show you an upper room prepared for the feast. Now, what I think he really means is the elements will be in the room, things like the bread, things like the wine, but you'll have to go in and actually set it up. I think when he means prepare it, he means in the literal sense of setting the table, preparing the elements, preparing for the meal itself to take place. But I think what's implied by this is that the basic elements, the food elements that would have been necessary, will be there waiting. Now, this is a pretty clever way that Christ had of instructing the apostles in how to find this room that had been prepared. And the reason it's so clever is it would have been so unusual in Jesus' day to see a man carrying a pot of water. It would have been a very odd thing to see. In that day, men never did domestic chores of this kind. Well, I guess times haven't changed all that much, actually. But in particular, men would never have carried a pot of water. That was uniquely a woman's role, a woman's task to go get water, draw water on a regular basis. So it's a very clever sign because it's such an unusual sign. It would be like saying, go into the city and look for a man carrying a purse. All right, well, that's not so unusual today either way. But you get my point. But the whole thing is curious because it's so cloak and dagger, isn't it? I mean, it's just so weird. Why doesn't he just say, go to 123 Maple Street and you'll find a man in an up with a room? I mean, you could still have had all of the the awe and the amazement that there was a room ready and that there was even somebody ready to provide a room. I mean, that alone is a pretty miraculous thing, right? Why the cloak and dagger part about, you know, meet a guy and he has a water pot and follow him to his house? Why do it that way? You know, Messiah handshake, you have to give him or he won't, you know, why that? You know, it's not just some curious little detail of Scripture. There's a fundamental reason why Jesus had to give him that answer that way. Because, in fact, it was cloak and dagger. Because, in fact, it was designed to fool his adversaries. Remember, in the twelve right now, who are standing around Jesus as he gives these directions, there stands a traitor waiting to hear some detail that would allow him to turn Jesus in. This man, And so what Jesus is doing here is making sure that G- Judas cannot learn where the meal will be held and in doing so arrange for the Pharisees to arrest Jesus in the middle of this meal because he uses instructions that give no clue as to the actual place of the meal. The only way Judas is going to find out where this meal is is when Jesus himself walks him to the house and leads him into the upper room. Once he's there, 
You can't leave until that fateful moment when Jesus says, go and do quickly what you have to do. At that point, Judas is ready to run off and try to catch Jesus. But if he had known in advance that they were going to such and such address, Judas could have easily have excused himself long enough to let the Pharisees know, hey, I know where he's going to be tonight, and interrupted a meal that Jesus and God himself was not going to have interrupted. So the instructions leave him no hope but to just follow along and find out as the rest of the group did. The other thing to consider about this scene is in, in watching how it played out is to put yourself at the perspective maybe of the man who carried the water pot for just a minute. Put yourself in the perspective of that man, whoever he was. We'll know him perhaps one day. What would you think made him expect or desire to prepare a Passover meal for 13 people he'd never seen, much less even knew they were coming? What prompted him to do that? How did he know to do that? And why was he willing to give it up to them when they asked? What was going through his mind? I love to play with those kinds of thoughts because I think it's in those moments you really begin to see how God works in the lives of men, you and I included. I mean, for example, did this man have another meal prepared downstairs for his family? Because as a Jew, he would have been preparing to observe the very same meal himself. So did he have that downstairs and he just had this instinct to prepare a second meal upstairs for 13 people? Perhaps if so, what a testimony to God's power to drive the behavior of men according to His will. If that's really what He did, consider what that means God is capable of doing in our lives if only we're willing to, to give to those inclinations that God puts in our heart. You know, to those desires that really don't have a rational explanation, nor do they need one. But in the obedience and the willingness to concede to the Spirit's leading in our heart, we get an opportunity to participate in moments like this, perhaps, in some way, shape, or form. Perhaps more likely, this man had prepared a meal for himself and his family in that upper room, but upon the request of the disciples, he gave it over to this group, such that this was to be his meal, but out of respect for this teacher that needed it, he gave it to the teacher and his disciples, leaving himself without such a meal. Perhaps that's what he did. And if so, isn't that how God works so often? I like that explanation maybe better than the first because to me that's more my experience. You know, he grants his children the opportunity to serve in the needs of others is the basic message here. And so often that opportunity brings with it the need of some level of personal sacrifice. Remember the widow as she entered into the temple and was giving into the treasury, right? The fact that she was giving up all she had was really the essential element of that moment, more so than the, the, the simple amount of her giving. Is, it's not enough that we're prepared to serve God and to serve others. It's at a matter of what cost are we willing to serve others. I, I sometimes think God is inclined to test our limits of obedience so we ourselves can discover where in our life we have reserved something as off-limits to God. He likes to test whether we're going to be obedient to the, to the limits that we've set for ourselves, And then will we go past those limits? Is there some possession in our life that is off-limits to God? Is there some activity that we won't give up? for the sake of what God may need us to do? Is there some person in our life that we can't walk away from? Or is there some goal that we can't let go by? Because if anything stands in our way to obedience, then he doesn't have our whole heart. And I think he does determine at times in our lives to reveal those limits as we've established them by putting us in a situation where we're going to have to go past that limit in order to be obedient. Not because the limit in and of itself was wrong, but because of the representation of what it means in our hearts, that we reserve something outside His will in our life. You know, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there was a requirement 
in this seven-day period that followed Passover that no one may eat leaven during that entire seven days. That's where it gets its name from, obviously. Leaven meaning yeast. We've seen already how yeast or leaven is a clear picture in Scripture of sin as it's used so often. So, on the Passover, you have the atonement for sin. The price being paid for sin. And then for seven days, the Jews remembered that sacrifice. And they also, of course, remembered that flight from Egypt that took place during the time after the Passover. And they did it by abstaining from leaven. A personal, conscious effort to abstain from leaven. So in our own understanding now of the Passover and of, and of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and of how they are being used as a picture during this week of Christ's death, you now begin to see that what is happening here is the justification of the faithful by the payment of the debt of sin through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And then what is to follow is a period when those who are the recipients of that grace should work to remove the leaven of sin from their lives, the sanctification of the walk of a believer. So in the removing of sin, we are honoring the sacrifice that made possible the relationship we have with God. So in the way these two festivals were constructed and laid out on this week of Christ's death, they reinforced the picture of not just the justification of sacrifice for sin, but also the sanctification of our walk without sin in our lives. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, our sacrificed lamb has been killed, so now let us go forth and living a life unleavened without the sin that marks our lives. Some have seen the verses I just read out of 1 Corinthians to imply Paul teaching we should continue to observe the festival of Passover. And though there's nothing wrong with memorializing Passover and celebrating the feast, far from it. It is not to say, to say though, that Paul is commanding us to observe that festival. He's speaking in spiritual terms. He's saying that we should continue to observe this festival, the Unleavened Bread Festival, but in spiritual terms. Remember, he says, in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Meaning, by recognizing its true spiritual purpose as a picture of sanctification, of our own denial of self, and of a walking out of our faith, removing the sin from our lives as an expression of our faith, as an expression of our obedience. What better way to think about the man who perhaps sacrificed his own Passover meal for the sake of Jesus and the disciples that night? Where he might have made an excuse that said, I can't give up this Passover meal. I'm obligated by God's law to keep it. He understood that the true act of love and faith in God was one of sacrifice of self, of giving up for the needs of others. This is not some message on my part of love is all that matters. I'm talking here about an expression of a faith in God that says, I love my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I love others as I love myself, such that their needs would come before my own. What are we willing to give up? Or what are we still clinging to in comparison to what God is asking us to do? Does, does anything stand in our way 
of obeying Christ. Even the rules and regulations that we count so important in our lives, even the, the goals that we've set for ourselves, that would be the test I think we have to apply as we leave this tonight. Next week as we come back in to Luke, we're certainly getting, getting, going to get into the heart of the Passover meal, go through the entire meal, and in doing so, we're going to continue to draw parallels out of the Passover itself. Many of you have heard that teaching probably elsewhere. I want to try to do it justice in this class as well by illustrating the pattern of the Seder meal as it was practiced under the law, how that pattern was in most cases followed by Christ, but in some important details how, it was, how he departed from the Seder meal and the meaning of those departures as well. That will be the context of next week's teaching. Dear Heavenly Father, it, it never ceases to amaze those of us who study Your Word, the intricate details that You have weaved through Your Word, through the history of time and men, and how all these details, Father, come together so perfectly. And in doing so, Father, they illustrate so well the awesome wisdom of Your Word, the trustworthiness of Your Word, and prove yet again the claims that Jesus made, Father, to be your Son, and to be our Messiah. Father, we, we're thankful that even tonight as we ventured into this small part of chapter 22 that we could be reminded of the awesome power of the Word before us. Father, but that awesome power falling on deaf ears or on hard hearts is an even more shameful thing. So we pray, Father, that tonight those who've heard have the boldness and the courage to act as You direct, not just in a witness to the world, Father, perhaps not just in the opportunity to teach or explain these truths to others, but more fundamentally, Father, in our own lives, in those things we control most easily, our own walk, our own decisions and words, Father, those things that mark our lives. May we be generous in what You've given us. May we be willing, Father, to yield to Your Spirit in all the decisions we make. May we understand the conviction of sin as it comes to us. And, Father, may we turn away from those things You would have us turn away from to remove those leaven, that leaven from our life. And Lord, as well for this teaching tonight, I pray it would be edifying that we would move out with, with it in our hearts only to return next week, if it be Your will. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen.